we're about to pray together, so I ask you to pray with me. Um, Father, we come to you, Lord, and we are your people, uh, gathered together in your name again this morning, God. Um, there's countless times that the church has done this, and Lord, you are so faithful to meet with your people, and to speak to them, and to edify them, Lord, and to receive their worship, and to receive their prayers, Lord, and to move and act in your mighty power on their behalf. God, I come to you today, and I thank you for this church for this people, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Thank You for this family. And Lord, we ask for Your help today, God, for Your holy presence and Your help. Lord, there, there is nothing uh, that rivals these things. The birth of the Savior, Lord, His revealing to all, to all mankind. And God, I pray that we would explode with thanks and praise. We would give You the praise and the worship that You're worthy of for what You've done for us in Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that's a supernatural thing. And God, I pray for help from the Holy Spirit to, to even talk about these things, Lord. Uh, to, to even hear about these things, God. I pray that You would help, them do it, do, help us do it in such a way that brings You great, great glory and magnifies Your great worth, Lord. So we ask for Your presence today, Lord. We want to meet with You. We want, to, we want You to come speak to us, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would give this church just more and more and more love for Jesus Christ. That you would root us in the head, Lord. That you would never let us move away from Him. And God, that you would just help us to grow in more love for Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we're beginning a new series. We're going to be walking through Jesus. We're, We're going to start teaching through Jesus Christ, and today we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus, just a little heads up of what's coming, we're going to do the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, probably the ascension of Christ, and so we're going to walk through the Savior, uh, the, what he's done, who He is and what He's done, and we're going to have time to just zero in on that over the next few weeks, but today we'll start this series with the birth of Christ, okay? And it'll kick, kick the series off, but it'll also help us. We got this uh, thing coming up this week called Easter. And it'll help us during this time to flood our minds with what Jesus has done. So we're going to be in Luke 2 today. But, but I want to read a quote to you um, just for you to be thinking about. Uh, why should a church... It shouldn't be real hard for you to get your mind here. But this is just, you know, why should a church do a series on Jesus? It shouldn't be real hard for you to figure out. But just let this quote just serve you in in this way. This is from John Stott, a famous quote from his book, Basic Christianity. It says this, Christianity is Christ. Who Christ is and what He has done are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If He was not who He said He was, and if He did not do what He said He came to do, then the foundation is undermined and the whole thing will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and nothing is left. Christ is the center forever. Okay, with this idea. And I want to give you two verses to kind of launch right behind John Stott. And the Word of God kind of leans you in this way. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The Christian life starts in Jesus and you never move away from it. And we actually have a warning later in Colossians 2 verse 19, listen to this, of a church who did not do this. 
they did not hold fast to the head from, the, from whom the whole body grows, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. So we have an example in God's word of a church that didn't hold fast to the head, which is Jesus. Okay? And God, God, the, Colossians 2 clearly teaches that the church grows with a growth that is from God as it holds fast to the head. So I say yes and amen to more of Jesus. And one of the things that I'm praying that just comes, comes out of this series together is God would just root us deeper into Jesus Christ. There's nothing that rivals this. In all the Bible, there's nothing that rivals this. Okay? What, who Jesus is and what he's done. So that would be just kind of uh, something to be praying for as our church and uh, be very expectant for, for the Lord to just grow you in this in your life. So... Here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. Uh, let me get there myself. Uh, you can get there if you're not. This is uh, historically referred to as the Christmas story. We're going to walk through this thing, and I've got so much to cover today. I'm going to try to move very, very quickly. So just, uh, just know that's coming, that I'm going to be talking a little fast. I'm, I'm drinking more caffeine today than I usually do. So uh, we are going to move fast uh, through this story to try to get everything covered. And I'm going to give you a lot of references and then say some quick things about verses. And if you're a note taker, just jot those references down as I, as I call them out. And this will be a great thing for you to come back and look at later. Uh, just stack some importance on top of this. This is something that your culture celebrates every year. And they have no idea for the most part of what they're talking about or what, what Jesus' birth actually means. So this would be a great time for us just to be informed by God's Word, to be able to come and to help people see the significance of the Savior's birth. Okay, so here we go. We're about to start, and we're going to move fast, starting in verse 1. Uh, here we go. Verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, we have Caesar Augustus. Okay. Also known as Octavius, if you're a student of history, this was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, if you've ever heard that. Caesar Augustus. This is him. Okay. This man was the most powerful man in the world at the time this was written. Okay. He ruled almost all of inhabited earth at that time. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he ruled it from 30 A.D., to, I mean, from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D. So for 44 years, this man was the most powerful man on the planet. And this is who we have here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now that uh, verse 1 tells you that a decree was made. And this is what you call it when somebody with this much power opens their mouth and gives a command. Okay? The emperor of Rome doesn't make political wishes. He makes decrees. And this word is used in, in, in God's word for God. Okay? This is an authoritative command that's given. And so he gives a decree. And what I want us to see is that, that the, the way that this flows out and the way that this unfolds is that decree, okay, it actually highlights God's authority and not the Roman emperor's authority. And you're going to see that as we move through. Okay? We will find out in just a few verses that the real reason that that decree went out from his mouth was that there were, the, there were these Old Testament prophecies that had to be fulfilled, that, that God had made promises to the world and He had sealed it in His Word, that there was going to be this ruler that would come forth from Bethlehem. 
Okay? So these things are actually going to highlight God's sovereign authority over world rulers. So the way that this happens is in a sovereign act of God, God puts this thought in this emperor's mind. And pagan Augustus, for, for all we know, he had no idea that he was being played by God to accomplish his purposes. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. This says of God that his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? None. This is who the God of the Bible is. Okay, so we see that God had made these promises and there were certain things that were going to have to be brought about for God's word to be good. Okay, And God takes the most powerful man in the world and he uses him okay, like a pawn. This, the, the emperor of Rome is like a piece of clay in the hand of God. Okay, This decree, as you read this, you're thinking, oh, that's a coincidence. That guy made a decree. And Mary and Joseph, boom, they're in Bethlehem. Don't think like that. This is not an accident. This is God working in history. Okay? He's fulfilling his purpose. And even the most powerful man in the world is like a piece of clay in his hand. So this, this is what we see here. And this is a great reminder that the God of the Bible okay, is the Lord of all of history. He controls everything. He works history to accomplish his purpose. Okay? Something else I want us to see in the first three verses so you have, the, you have this display of the sovereignty of God. But I, I also want you to see that the birth of Jesus, and this, this, is, this is very, very helpful. The birth of Jesus is rooted in real, verifiable world history. Okay? I want you to see that. This really happened. Let me just, let me just say this, because I'm, I know there are people here who just struggle with, with just crazy lies and doubts. This really happened. Okay? Jesus' birth is not folklore. It's not a myth. This is not Lord of the Rings. This is not the Hobbit. This is not Santa Claus. Okay? It was rooted in a real emperor of Rome. His name was Caesar Augustus. Okay? Jesus was born when Caesar, Caesar Augustus was the emperor. Okay? This is real. It's rooted in it. These guys have Wikipedia pages. Okay? You can go and study these things for yourself. The decree that's mentioned in Luke chapter 2... It's real. It's verifiable in history. Pagans know all about it. And here we have Jesus' birth rooted in these things. This is not okay, a fairy tale. This is rooted. Okay, so here we go. Luke says to us, you know when Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was the emperor. And if that's not good enough for you, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And it wasn't the second census that he did, it was that first one. These things are rooted in a very specific place in history. And we have Jesus' birth coming out of this. Okay, so this is, this is, this is what, we're, what we're supposed to be thinking about. Verse 3, all went to be registered, registered each to his home, own town. So the decree was given, and everybody starts going to their own town to be registered. And we have here a symbol of oppression for the people of God. You say, what do you mean? I say this, write this down. Genesis 49.10, God gave a promise, okay, that the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Okay? 
they were going to be registered because they had been conquered by the Romans. God's people, Israel, were conquered by the Romans. And then, in a display of oppression, they're having to go to their hometown to register before this pagan ruler. Yet God had promised that this scepter would never depart from Judah. Okay? So this, this, this gets your mind thinking that the time, right here, what we're looking at, the time is right for the Messiah to come forth. Okay, Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, and he's going to fulfill these promises. But right now they're not fulfilled, so the time is right for him. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. One verse, two, sorry, two verses, several Old Testament prophecies fulfilled right there. We're going to walk through them real fast. Micah 5, 2, listen to this. This is a promise from God's Word. These are ancient promises that God said, and they have to be fulfilled or God would have lied. Okay? These are promises that have to be fulfilled. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay? And we read in Luke 2, verse 4, that they're on their way to what city? To Bethlehem. They're going to the exact place. That these, these are hundreds of years between this and God's work and His purpose, and He's sending them there. Another prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God says this, and your house, This is a promise from God to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise from God for, from God to King David. Okay? And this verse and many others, this is not the only place where we get a promise from David mentioned in the Old Testament. So there are a lot of them. But we knew this from, from this verse, that there was coming a king that was going to reign forever over Israel. And that king would come through the line of David. Okay? The promise was made from David. And twice in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, they were going to... Uh, let's see, where's that? Uh, verse 4, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So that's two prophecies fulfilled. Let's go to Isaiah 7, verse 14, and we read this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, we read that Mary made this journey, I mean, Joseph made this journey not by himself, but with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is the same Mary who, one chapter before, the angel named Gabriel would appear to her, and he would tell her that she was about to have a baby born of the Holy Spirit, and she was supposed to name him Jesus. Okay? So we have these prophecies being fulfilled. And we have this young woman making this long journey to Bethlehem. And the Word of God teaches that that young woman named Mary had the heartbeat of the Messiah in her womb. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Think about that phrase. All throughout history and even before, all throughout redemptive history, the Bible's been working towards this moment where the Christ, the seed of the woman, would be revealed. And that verse said the time came. The time came. Listen to Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come. There's a vivid picture there 
that there's this cup being filled up with water and, it's, and it comes to the very top and then it explodes over. Okay? And the time had come. Verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay. Let's, let's think about this. If it was your job to write a gospel of the New Testament and you had to record the birth of Jesus... Would you have done it like that? That's one verse to record the most important birth in history. And it's just snuck in there. Okay? And the, and the details of how this happened and Jesus' birth and the manger and all these things, it's so, because it's so simple, okay? it is easy, very easy to miss the significance of what we have here. Okay? This, is the, this is the record of the birth of Jesus. And this is a very, very humble story. The most exalted person is born, that has ever existed, is born in a manger. Okay? This should blow your mind. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, how he chose to bring it about, should absolutely blow your mind. He has come into the world. The King of Kings, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. Okay? He is now among his creation in flesh and blood. Okay? And he's not a, he didn't come down as a 35-year-old warrior king. He is an infant sitting in a manger. He, he is almost completely helpless. And this is how he chose to come to us, okay? The manger should blow your mind. That word, manger, I don't know if you know this or not, but that means an animal feeding trough. So you have the Savior of the world, and he's born... And then his mom wraps him up and sets him in an animal feeding trough. Okay? I want you to think about that. This is a great reminder to us that Jesus, in his death, he didn't just humble himself. His entire life, in the words of Philippians chapter 2, was an emptying out and a humbling of himself. His entire life. He was born in a manger, and we know how the story ends. In about 30 years, he'll die a gruesome death of a criminal on a bloody cross. From cradle to cross, he pours himself out. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Okay? This is Jesus. If our king... This is just a side note real quick. Moving through this. If our king was this lowly, if he came to us in this way, okay? If he was this, this mindful that I didn't come to serve but to be served, then I'll ask you this question. How lowly should his servants be? How lowly should his children be? Okay? If this is the king, how lowly should we be? In verse 7, we read this phrase. There was no place for them in the end. The place where Jesus was born was most likely outside. It was most likely a small cave cut into a cliff in Bethlehem where animals would have been sheltered. All right, let me ask you this. Why was Jesus born outside in a manger? God's Word tells you. Because there was no room for them in the end. Okay? And then you ask this question. Why was there no room for them in the end? And that right there is evidence of the sinfulness of man. Okay? Here's why there was no room for them in the end. There was not a soul in Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born that was willing to give up their comfortable bed for a young pregnant woman who just went in labor. So you have a city filled. This is God's people. You have a city filled, okay? And they, they're unwilling to bring her in. And so there you have it. There was no room for them in the end. And so the Savior was born outside and he was laid in a manger. 
Okay, this is, this is mercy uh, from God that Jesus would even consider a people like this. Because the same ones who drove him to a manger, you know the story, would drive him to a cross. Okay? And he knows, he knows, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. He knows this. Okay? And the ones who drove him to the manger would be, be the very ones that he's came to save and to serve and lay his life down for. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Okay. In the first century culture, it was very common that when you had uh, the firstborn son was, was born, okay, that you would have, you would announce his birth publicly, okay? And the reason that you would do that if you're, is because that meant the family line was secure, okay? That it was going to, you had the family lineage secure. Now, if you were a royal family, it was an even bigger deal, okay? And we see some of this still. And the reason it was a bigger deal, because your family wasn't just secure, you had an heir and the throne was secure, okay? So there was a birth announcement where the firstborn son was a popular thing in that culture, and God's about to make one. Okay, God's about to make a birth announcement for his firstborn son. Now, the birth of the king of kings had just occurred. And who do you think gets the first news of the birth? Who do you think in your mind? You're writing the story and you're thinking, high priest in Jerusalem, got to be right. What about that scribe who just studies the word of God from, from morning to night and he just immersed? What about Anna the, Anna, the woman who's just in the temple just worshiping Jesus with fasting and prayer? What about all these godly, that's who we would send the news to, right? And But God's word says that, that the news went out to these shepherds, okay? Now, what do you know about the shepherds? What's the significance of that? What are we supposed to take away from that? The news of Jesus' birth, okay, just went out to shepherds. Now, here's what we know about these men. They are not high society folks, okay? These were common people. Okay, these men worked with their hands. They lived outside, slept outside. Okay, and they lived the life of a nomad. This is not the intellectual type. This is definitely not the rich type. What is God trying to tell us when he reveals this, the birth of the Savior to shepherds? What is God trying to tell us? They represent the heart of God, that Jesus' birth is not just for the high, and the people who, who the society just lifts up. Jesus' birth is even, it's good news even to the lowest of men. And so we have this news making it to these shepherds. Okay, this is good news for all people, all people. In the middle, of, the way this happens is in the middle of the night, in a field near Bethlehem, these guys are just doing their job. It's, it's like any other, any other night for them. And then all of a sudden, the, sky, the dark sky is set ablaze with the glory of God. And they see an angel of the Lord. And that angel begins to speak to them. Okay? This is a, and, and, and God's word goes out of its way to say this. And they were filled with great fear. That is just a small reminder for you that in, in man and in his sinfulness, the pro, they were absolutely right in what they did. That is the proper response when sinful man draws near to the glory of God. So they were filled with not just a little fear, but with great fear. This is evidence of the sinfulness of man. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Alright? 
The story of the angel and the shepherd shows us why we need preaching. Okay? We need someone to explain to us the significance of these historical events. And here's what I mean. You have the Savior of the world, the most exalted person and the most, the most powerful person just came into the earth in Bethlehem. They're probably no more than two miles away from, from this newborn infant named Jesus. And they have absolutely no idea about it. They have absolutely no idea what has happened. So God sends a messenger to explain to them how significant this event is that just happened. Okay? So they needed preaching. This is great evidence for that. They needed preaching and we need preaching today. Okay? You think about your culture. Your culture celebrates. Okay? So you have this, this historical birth of Jesus. And that's exactly where your culture leaves it. We are bombarded and filled even in the church sometimes, with cute baby Jesus stories, okay? And you have that. You have the, the nativity, you know? And, and, and it's cute, and, it, and it's all that. But this means nothing unless you know the significance of what this means, okay? All you have is a baby in a cradle unless you know that this is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. Unless you know that that cradle is leading Him to make an atoning sacrifice for sins that will save all who believe, then all you have... It's just a baby Jesus story, okay? And that is a highway to eternal destruction. It'll save no one. It's not good news, okay? So we need preaching. We need, to, we need preaching and we need to preach to people to, for them to understand the significance of these events. They're lost without it. They don't understand, just like the shepherds in the field. They needed someone to explain these things to them. So we need preaching. And preaching is exactly what God sends this angel to do. In verse 10. In verse 11, we'll talk about this more in a minute. The angel comes and he gives the gospel to these shepherds in premature, compact form. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But in verse 10, we have these words. Listen to this. Fear not. Okay? So now we have some, some kind of message and some kind of news that's going to deal with, a, with the absolutely legitimate fear that the, that the shepherds have as they appear before the glory of God. Fear not. Good news of great joy. Okay? Not just news, but good news. And not just news of joy, but of great joy. And that's, that's what they come to announce. And then we have this phrase. That will be for all the people. And that should remind you of what Jesus has told us to do. This news, this message, His birth, the person of Christ is for all nations. Every tribe tongue, and people. He's worthy. Okay, verse, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right, I want you to see something. Verse 10, the news went to all the people. Verse 11, he said, this is for you. Okay, and this is one of the reasons why that happens. Because when we hear that this is for all, this is for all the people, Sometimes we have a tendency to get lost in the crowd. And God's Word says that this news is for all, that's plural, and that this news is for you, singular. This Jesus is born for you, the shepherds. And the ones whom the shepherds represent in the story is, the, is, is all the people, the common man. Okay? This is a wide open invitation to all mankind and a personal gift 
And it needs to be ex- experienced as a personal gift to each person. Up to this point in the Bible, you think about this, you read the Old Testament, you get language like this. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. And now it flips and you have the languages now. He is here. Today he's born. He's on the planet. His heart's beating. He just got born in Bethlehem. Okay? So we are on the hinge of history. It literally just swung over from he's coming to he's here. Okay, this is the good news that they announce. All right, I want you to see this. I already told you that verse 11 is the gospel preached in premature, compact form. Okay? Why do, why do I say that? The gospel is preached because Jesus Christ is preached. Okay? I want, you to, I want you to know that Jesus is the good news. Do not ever forget that. Okay? That, that all these gospel doctrines and the things that you have in your head when you're sharing this thing, okay? The doctrine is not the gospel. Jesus is the good news. And the doctrines don't save people. The Savior does. Okay? So I'm just throwing that out there. We live in kind of a church culture right now. And you may have heard some of this. To where the word gospel can almost be a cliche and a buzzword. And everything's gospel-centered, gospel-centered, gospel this, gospel that. And that's perfectly fine. And I yes and amen that. But I want to give everybody here a warning. Okay? That you can actually be excited about the gospel and have very little love for Jesus Christ. You can. You can love the doctrine of justification by faith and have just a smidgen of love for the God who justifies. That can happen to you. Jesus is the good news, and the gospel was preached because Christ Jesus was preached. And every one of you would do well when you're sharing the gospel with people to send them to the Savior, the person, Jesus, the Savior. Okay? In premature, compact form. The gospel in premature, compact form. What do I mean by premature? Okay. About 30 years after this birth announcement, Jesus Christ will head up a hill and He will be crucified okay, on a bloody cross. So the gospel in premature form, the premature part is that there's going to be a bloody cross and an empty tomb that's going to be part of this message forever. But right here, we have it in premature form. Okay? The danger is, is that you would leave it in premature form. Okay? Don't leave it in premature form. You need to remember, the reason we celebrate the birth is because it's the starting point of Jesus' life. And you need to know that. Don't, don't make it the end point. It's the starting point. Okay? The amazing thing is, is not just that He came, but that He came to die for our sins. The manger is the prelude to the atoning sacrifice that will actually save all who believe. Okay? So it's the gospel in premature form. What do I mean by compact form? You have three words in verse 11. They're, crystal, they're words about Jesus. They're Christological words. And they are pregnant with meaning. All three of them. And the words are Savior, Christ, and Lord. So we're going to unpack that. All right, Savior, he's called the Savior, the Christ, and Lord. Okay? The Savior is born. Listen to this. Salvation, what is it? It's God's mighty act of rescue from destruction and the condition of safety that follows that mighty act of rescue. A Savior is someone whom God uses to bring about salvation. Okay? Now, this word has a rich history. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And something real interesting happens. Moses is called a Savior. That's Exodus chapter 14. The book of Judges is filled with guys that God raises up as a Savior or a Deliverer. 
2 uh, Kings 13, one of the kings in Israel is described as a savior. So how are we supposed to process this information? Is Jesus just one of many saviors that the scripture would point us to? No, that is not the way we process that. These men were types and shadows that pointed to the Savior Jesus. And one of the ways that we know that is that almost in every single one of those instances, it would say something like, and God raised up a Savior. Okay, And you would have some man that he would use uh, in a powerful way. But the angels just said, the Savior is born. And there was never a person uh, described in God's word before that was born the Savior. This is an infant in Bethlehem. Okay, This helpless infant. And these angels said, that's the Savior. He's born. Right now, present tense, He's the Savior right now. Not going to be the Savior. He is the Savior right now. This is the Savior. Okay, Think about this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It's said about Jesus that He would save His people from their sins. So put some meat on this phrase, Savior. Think about it. Think about what it means. Jesus was prophesied to be the one to save His people from their sins. Our sins demand God's wrath, God's just, holy wrath. Okay, And the Savior was born to deal with your biggest problem, which is the wrath of God. He saves, He delivers, and He rescues you from the wrath of God. And this is exactly what he said to do in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, that he saves us from the wrath of God. He swallows it on our behalf. The wrath of God is poured out on the Savior and not on you. Okay? So he's the Savior, and he's born. He's here. And he's the Savior who is Christ. This word is used so often of Jesus that most people think it's his last name, Jesus Christ. But it's actually a title in God's word. The Christ is the same as the Old Testament word Messiah, okay, which means anointed one. This is the anointed one from Psalm chapter 2 that God said He was going to sit on His throne and that was going to rule all nations. Okay, This is the anointed one. The Jews had awaited for the Messiah for centuries. And every single Jew, this was common language in the, in, in the time of Christ, every single Jew knew this term, the Messiah, this, this Messiah that God... He was the one, the coming deliverer that God had promised to Israel. Even the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she even uses the word when she's talking to Jesus. I mean, this word had saturated the culture. Okay, God's people had been conquered and they had, they had set their only hope on God made a promise. He's going to fulfill it. There's one coming and now He's here. He is Christ. I want to give you one, one other thing to think about. In the Old Testament... The, the word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. In the Old Testament, God anoints prophets, priests, and kings to accomplish His purposes. Okay? Now, these roles in the Old Testament were not interchangeable. In fact, there's a, there's a, there's a great deal of problem that happens in the Old Testament when kings try to play priest before God. So never before. There's been anointed ones, but there's never been an anointed one that holds all three of those offices and roles at the same time. But listen to this. He was the anointed one that was going to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. He was the prophet like Moses. Okay? That's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He was the priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. 
He was the king who would reign forever from the line of David. That's 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. He was the prophet, priest, and king. He was everything. He was the anointed of God. Okay? The Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Okay? And you just heard the most exalted title given to Christ Jesus in the Scriptures. He is the Lord. Okay? This is a term of kingship and a term of deity. The promised Savior, the one that God had promised to send and to save, is none other than God Himself. He is the Lord. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9-11. through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. So the one that would come down and save the anointed of God is God. Okay? And He's born. The eternal one has been born and He is in a manger in Bethlehem. The incarnation should blow your mind. Okay? He is the Savior. He is Christ and He is Lord. And He's born for you. Okay? And this is good news for it. For all the nations, for all the peoples. Verse 12, and this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So they're sitting there and they're taking in this news. They're like, how am I going to know which one it is? And the angel said, there might have been a lot of babies in, in Bethlehem that night in swaddling clothes. But the things that we get from God's word, you're only going to see one in a manger. And the angel said, when you see that one, that's him. That's the Savior. This is the sign. This is the sign. The one who's in the manger is the Savior. Verse 13. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. Luke 2. Thus far, one angel is there. Okay. Verse 13. A multitude just showed up. Okay, one angel was there, a multitude just showed up. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, that word multitude is used to describe how many stars are in the sky. So God's Word is telling you that a bunch of angels just showed up. A multitude. Okay? I want you to think about this. This is powerful. Okay, and the text describes them as heavenly host. And I want you to know that that literally means heavenly army. Okay. These are soldiers, and there is a multitude of them that just showed up. These soldiers. They're soldiers in the army of heaven, and they absolutely began to fill the sky. And the shepherds are there. There was one angel. Now, now there's multitudes of these soldiers. All right? I want to take just a second. This won't take long, but I want to, I want to destroy a cultural myth in many of your minds. Okay. These creatures, angels, God's Word calls them soldiers. Okay, From the moment you were born, your culture has bombarded you that these beings that God has created are light-skinned, rosy-cheeked, weak beings. Okay, That is not true. It's not true. Psalm, Psalm 1, let me, let me find the reference real quick. Psalm 103.20, listen to the description that it gives them. These are God's mighty ones. 
Okay, Psalm 103.20. In 2 Kings 19.35, we have a story about one of these angels. And I wonder if you've ever heard this. But 2 Kings 19.35 says that one of them goes out and he kills 185,000 soldiers in a single night by himself. Okay? This is just one of these mighty ones. And you have a multitude from sky to sky standing around in the army of heaven. Okay? These creatures are soldiers. They've been involved in cosmic warfare since God pronounces a curse on Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We talk about that a lot. He's actually talking to Satan in that verse. And there was enmity placed between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay? And these angels have been involved in that conflict. And now, the one who would come from the woman, the seed of the woman, has been born. And he's the one that's going to crush the head of Satan. Can you imagine? I want you to try to picture this in your mind. Just as vivid as the Spirit of God would give you. Can you imagine this, the shepherds that night as they looked all across the sky? Okay? And this vast number of these created beings that are described as being in heaven's army filled the sky. And they just break forth with praise to God. I want you to imagine that. What do you think it sounded like? Okay? What do you think it sounded like that night? Not a boys' choir. Okay? These were warriors. All right? By all accounts, this was an awesome. This was an awesome uh, event. Okay, here we go. What was the multitude of heaven's army saying? Okay, let's split their song into two parts and examine this. This is, this is rich. The first part, they were saying, Glory to God in the highest. And the Bible teaches that the end goal for everything that God does is His own glory. Yes, the Word of God literally teaches that. Everything that God does, His ultimate aim is to glorify Himself. The glory of God. Okay, for example, Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us that God is glorified in His work of creation. God, there's nothing, and then God says it from His mouth and creates the heavens and the earth and the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, so God is glorified in the works of creation. Job 38 verse 7 gives a vivid picture of the angels as God is creating. He, he describes the angels as sons of God. They're watching God fling universes and galaxies into place. And it says the sons of God saw these things and they shouted for joy. Okay, So they, these angels watched God create the heavens and the earth and they're just praising God and glorifying Him. And God is glorified in all His works. And God is glorified in creation. So angels praising God is nothing unique to Luke chapter 2. Okay? But I want you to know that there's something very unique happening in this passage. Okay? Let me, let me go at it this way. Very, very interesting. In verse 13, the phrase, glory to God in the highest, is literally... It literally should be translated glory in the highest to God. And some of your versions may even do that. Now the reason that that's very interesting, okay, is that the angels had sang glory to God before. But that in the highest phrase actually modifies the type of glory that God is getting right now. Not where God is at. So the phrase literally is glory in the highest to God. Okay. Now the reason that that should tip your mind 
is that God, God gets glory in every single work that He does, but when the Savior comes, when Jesus Christ is revealed, God gets the highest glory. God gets the highest glory in that moment. He is most glorified in Jesus. Okay? He is most glorified in, in what He's done in Jesus Christ. Listen to Spurgeon. The song of creation is not as sweet as the song of the incarnation. That's Charles Spurgeon. Okay, and what we see here in Luke chapter 2, there is more glory, more glory to God in a little baby in a manger named Christ Jesus than in all the universes that have ever been created. Now God's Word describes Jesus, okay? We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. And the Gospel... In the New Testament, is described as the gospel of the glory of God. Or the gospel of the glory of Christ. Okay, So God gets the most glory for what He's done in Jesus. There is no rivals to this in what God has done. Jesus comes into the world, the Savior is born, and God gets the highest glory for what He's done in Christ. This is powerful. Praise God for what He's done in Jesus. The second half of the angel's song. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay? Now, real quick, there's a textual problem with some of your versions uh, in that verse. Uh, especially the, you guys who have older versions. They're not against them, so don't hear me wrong. I just want you to know uh, God's Word right here. Okay, some of you have older versions, and they say something like this. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Okay? And so, the way that that reads is Jesus comes... Peace on earth, goodwill to men, kumbaya, everybody's happy. Okay? And what I want you to know is that's a, that has a ring of uh, universalism. Jesus comes and everybody's saved. Okay? Peace on earth, goodwill to men, let's all, uh, let's all be happy. Okay? What I want you to know is that almost every single new version translates this rightly and it, and it limits the group who gets this peace that the angels uh, proclaim and it, it'll say something like this um, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased or among those with whom he's well pleased something like that if the group is limited that's what he's getting at right there because God's word is very clear about this there is no peace for the wicked everybody does not get saved Jesus comes and the invitation is wide open but everybody does not respond so peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. The reference here is for peace with God. Okay, the, the peace that the angels announce is he's announcing that there's now a way to have peace with God. Now, the reason that we need that, okay, this is the greatest need for lost humanity, is because we are actually God's enemies. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Okay. Mankind is born uh, in Adam. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God's Word, yes, it really teaches this, is that we are enemies of God. Okay? This is a warfare term. There's no peace. And then all of a sudden, the angels announce peace among those with whom He is well pleased. How do you get in that group? How do you get in the group among whom uh, He is well pleased? Not by works. We know that from the rest of the, rest of the Bible. Okay, listen to this. To understand that phrase, peace 
to the ones with whom God is pleased. To understand that phrase, you need to have a little biblical background. Okay, Listen to this. Write these verses down. The Bible teaches that the first man that God created was named Adam. Okay, As the first man, Adam represented the entire human race. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 would be a great place to meditate on, on this. Okay? And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, the Bible teaches that when Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into sin with him. As a result, his sinful nature, Adam's nature, was passed down from him all the way to you. Every person who is born in the world is born into sin, born in Adam. Okay? Every person united to Adam, bearing the image of Adam, and is a sinner, is a sinner against God, counted as God's enemy. So if everyone is born, and that's true, if everyone is born in Adam and doesn't please God, how can anyone on earth receive the peace that the angels announce? Peace on earth among those whom he's well pleased. Glad you asked. Okay, here we go. If you know the New Testament well, these words with whom he is well pleased, if you know it well, then they would remind you of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus is baptized and a voice from heaven just thunders out. Luke chapter 3 verse 22. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that's what God the Father said about Jesus in Luke chapter 3 verse 22. Okay, here's what I want you to know. Jesus is the only one who pleased the Father. He's the only one who's done it, okay? He was born of a virgin. He broke Adam's sinful lineage. Jesus didn't carry Adam's sin into his birth. Why? Because he was born of the virgin, of the Holy Spirit. That did not pass down to him, okay? Jesus, like Adam, is also born as a representative. Adam's sin plunged the human race into sin with him. He was a representative and a head of the human race. Jesus is also born as a representative, this is why the Word of God calls him the second man and the last Adam. Okay? He's born as a representative. He's the only one that's pleased God, and he's born as a representative. So I, I want you to know this. All humanity, without exceptions, is, is, is represented by two people. You are either in Adam or in Jesus. Okay? That, you are either in Adam who sinned and fell, or you're in Jesus with whom God is well pleased. And the only way to get peace with God is to get out of Adam and into Jesus Christ. The only way you can be joined to Jesus is through faith in Christ. So let's read a couple of verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. It says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay? So, I want you to just simplify this. Think about this. That verse teaches, you finish this sentence. When Adam sinned, you sinned. Adam sinned, you're counted a sinner. Flip the script. Last half of the verse. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. When Jesus obeyed, you obeyed. Okay? And so we see here that just as Adam's sin was transferred to some, Jesus' righteousness will be transferred to others. And Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells you exactly how this happens.
okay? Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what the angels announced, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, so God's Word teaches this, that the peace of God is given to the ones who are justified in Jesus, and the only way to be justified is through faith in Christ. And so what we have there is the angels announcing, this was not known before, Okay? But now the Savior is here and, the, and peace with God is offered to all mankind. Okay? And this is what we have. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Okay? So you put yourself in that story and what do you do? you see this night sky set ablaze with the glory of God. And this angel comes and he declares good news of great joy to you. And then you see the sky filled with armies of angels. Okay? And they're telling you everything you about is about this baby in Bethlehem. And they leave. What do you do? You look at your buddies and you say, let's go see that baby in Bethlehem. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. They go and they found the Savior, the one lying in the manger. Okay? And their actions really show us that they believed the gospel. They were announced this, they were preached Christ, and they, and they responded. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the same that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and has been told. Them. So there's a lot more there than we can get dig into. And I moved really fast through Luke, Luke 2. But the last thing I want you to see before we move into application is this. They made known the saying. Okay? That, that's, that's in there, verse 17. The saying was the announcement that the angels had made. The gospel, Christ Jesus. And they go to Bethlehem to find the Savior and they make known the saying uh, that's been announced to them. Okay, these common shepherds became the first New Testament evangelist. And the New Testament is filled with this kind of story that God would raise up common men, that He would redeem them through the blood of Jesus and fill them with the Holy Spirit and send them out to change the world. And this is just an encouragement to us for every person in this room that God can use you. Okay? And this is an encouragement to us that one of the first things they did after taking in this good news is they began to announce it to the world. They became the first evangelists of the New, of the New Testament. Okay. Um, I'm going to boil it down. There's, there's a lot more here, but I'm going to boil our takeaway down into just one thing. And I really want to push you on this uh, personally. I want to I push you on this, this idea that, this, that Jesus coming into the world to save sinners and humbling himself in the, in the way that he has done it, okay? Manger, cross, poured out, emptied himself. It demands adoration, okay? Adoration. And I want to I ask you where your heart is at this morning. And I, wanna, I want you to examine yourself. Are you weak? Are you weak in this area? Are you cold in your zeal towards Christ Jesus, okay? Are you strong in other areas of the Christian life but a wimp in praise to God? And you, I want you to ask honest questions like that. Think about this. God sent the Savior of the world. God sent the Savior of the world. Does that do something in you? Okay, does that do something in you? There's a great rebuke for every Christian who leaves their first love. 
A great rebuke in God's Word. God sent the Savior, Christ Jesus. And I want to ask you one more time, does that do something in your heart? Okay? Joy, thanks, praise, adoration just starts bursting forth when we see these things right. Do not ever let yourself get cold to Jesus. This is a great sin. Okay, consider these angels. These angels that began to just herald and praise God. Burst forth with praise. Think about this about the angels. They needed no forgiveness. Okay, they needed no redeemer, no savior, no atoning blood, these angels. Okay, and even though they didn't need what we need, Jesus meets our greatest need, even though they didn't need these things. They began to just give God, just, they filled the sky, this army did, with just adoration for what God had done in Jesus. Okay? So I want to tell you this. How much more should we, the redeemed of Jesus Christ, okay? the sinners saved by the grace of God, how much more, that the reconciled enemies of God, the ones who were dead in sin but now are alive in Christ, how much more should we than these angels give God loud, powerful, heartfelt, ceaseless praise for what He's done in Jesus? Okay? Stop looking around for something higher than this in your life. Jesus Christ is the highest. There is no rival. Okay? The things that your heart gravitates toward, you'll never put anything in there more exalted than Christ Jesus. Stop looking around for that. Jesus, Christianity is Christ. Jesus needs to be the obsession of your life. Okay? Absolutely obsessed with Him. And I want to encourage you, don't let another day pass without these things gripping your heart. You need to walk in joyful adoration for what God has done in Jesus. God is worthy to be worshipped with never-ending never praise for what He's done. God sent the Savior of the world. He sent the Savior. I want to close with these words. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord.